Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for another week in which we, as your people, can open your word and study it together. Forgive us, Lord, for the times in the past in which we have approached your word presumptuously, taken your word for granted, treated it as unimportant. We pray that you would give us now a burning hunger and desire to know you better through your word. Please help us now as we turn our attention to this wonderful, glorious passage about your Son. Grant us eyes to see Christ as our only comfort in life and death. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 7. We here at First Baptist have been making our way through the Gospel of Luke, uh, learning about the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ from this Gospel. And this morning we come to chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Now when we study the New Testament, uh, like the Gospel of Luke, uh, we should always be aware that we are reading something written by a first century author to a first century audience about first century events. And that a lot has changed in the last 20 centuries that then separate us from the original context. And so sometimes when we're studying this gospel, there's these like historical and cultural gaps that we need to fill first in order to understand the significance of something that Luke wrote. Like, why is this the big deal? You remember the leper from chapter 5? While Jesus was in one of the cities, there came to him a man full of leprosy. And initially we read that and we're like, whoa, okay, why is that a big deal? And that's because in the 20 centuries since Luke wrote that, well, much has changed with regards to the disease of leprosy. It's largely been eradicated. And so if we're going to understand that man's plight, If we're going to understand why it's so significant that Jesus healed him, and if we're going to understand why it's significant how Jesus healed him by touching him, we just need to do a little bit of homework first on the significance of leprosy back then, physically, socially, and spiritually. Or you remember that scene when Jesus is hanging out with the tax collectors, they're having this big feast at Levi's house. We say, okay, why is that a big deal? Well, in order for us to understand the significance of that meal and why the Pharisees got so mad, we need to do a little bit of homework first on the social implications of being a tax collector and even the cultural significance back then of sharing a meal together. I say all that to say, we come to a story this morning in which the main issue, death, A young man dies. A mother mourns over the death of her son. Like instantly, really without any background or homework, like we get it. We get the significance. We get why this is a really big deal. Sure, there's some cultural things with regards to death that we'll get to in a little bit. But at the end of the day, death is death. Uh, This isn't like a far-off first-century concept that we need to then translate into our 21st century American mindsets. 
Because if there's one thing that's remained constant throughout human history, even as culture has changed and language has changed and medicine and technology and society have all changed much, what hasn't changed is that the percentage of people who die is still 100%. Perhaps we live longer. Perhaps causes of death are different. But we still have to deal with our mortality and the mortality of our loved ones and the fear of death just like they did back then. 100% of the people in this room and 100% of the people that we know and love we're all going to die if the Lord tarries. And it's just a matter of order, right? It's a matter of them going to your funeral or you going to their funeral. Unless Jesus goes to your funeral, then everything just gets crazy. Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through all the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So I have five points for you this morning just to make it easier to follow along, and they all begin with the letter P. Point number one is the providence. Verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Soon after what? Well, remember the previous narrative was about the healing of the centurion's servant. This delegation comes to Jesus from this centurion. His servant is really sick at the point of death, asking Jesus to help. And so Jesus begins to head towards the direction of the centurion. But before he can get there, the centurion sends another delegation, this time saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus marvels at this man's faith, and the servant is healed. Well, in that story, that's verses 1 through 10 of this chapter, that story takes place in the town of Capernaum. And soon afterward is then referring to soon after that miracle, right? Soon after the healing of the centurion servant in Capernaum, Jesus went to a town called Nain. Now, Nain is about as obscure a town as you can find in the Bible. It's literally only mentioned here. You think about all the towns and the cities that are mentioned in like land allotments. You think about all the towns and the cities that people in the Old Testament were traveling through. But Nain is never once mentioned anywhere else. So it should kind of give you an idea of just how obscure of a small town this was. And here's the other thing about Nain. 
It isn't exactly like next door to Capernaum. It's a good 20 miles southwest from Capernaum, a full day's journey. I think sometimes as those who are removed not only from the geography, but also the the very idea of walking far distances, right? Like I think we can easily miss the significance of things like this. Like my daily goal on my Fitbit, my daily goal is 7,500 steps. Right. The, the, the factory kind of default is 10,000, but I'm just a little bit more realistic. So I set it at 7,500, and when I, when I get to 7,500, right, this thing buzzes like it's going to explode, and I am so satisfied, I'm so happy, I feel so accomplished and active and healthy. You know how far walking 7,500 steps will get you? It's a little over three miles. Right? That's about a sixth of the way from Capernaum to Nain. And so soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. Like, that's not a small deal. It's something that would have taken up Jesus' entire day in rigorous travel. And it's not only him. Look at the end of verse 11. His disciples and a great crowd went with him. And that makes sense. They just saw him perform this ridiculous miracle, right? He healed someone who was on the verge of death without even going near him. Just by his word, I mean, they're not taking a chance that they might miss the next big thing that Jesus is about to do. What if he starts making food out of nothing? What if he overthrows the Romans by his word? We're not going to miss that. We've got to be there, even if it means walking 20 miles. Here's the question we need to ask ourselves. Why name? If it's that insignificant of a place, and it's that far away, why in the world would Jesus go to Nain? Verse 12 answers our question. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold. Behold, right? A modern translation might be like, whoa, would you look at that? Behold. A man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So here's this funeral procession. They're carrying the body of this recently deceased man out of the town because the Jews would always bury their dead outside of their towns. And in a small town like Nain, funerals in general were a big deal back then. The whole community would come together and mourn. But you can imagine that would be heightened even more so in a small town like Nain where everybody probably knew each other. And so there's this sizable group. Luke calls it a considerable crowd taking part in this funeral procession. So I just want you to picture this in your mind's eye. You've got Jesus and his great crowd. They're approaching the town of Nain after a long day of travel. And you've got this considerable crowd of mourners in this funeral procession. They're leaving the town of Nain. These two large groups just so happen to run into each other at this choke point at the town gate of Nain. And now there's this big logjam. Every single time that I'm driving and I get to the George Washington Bridge, there's inevitably traffic as you approach the bridge. Like, I'm no, like, transportation planning expert. 
but it's kind of inevitable, right? Like, this can't be good. There's 40 different highways that all literally merge into three lanes on one bridge. Of course, there's going to be traffic. Now, that may be inevitable with the largest, uh, busiest city uh, on the East Coast. But remember, Nain, Nain is not New York City. This is a small town. This is as insignificant as can be. Nobody important ever goes there. Nothing biblically significant has ever happened there. And so if you're sitting in traffic, trying to get on the outbound George, like it doesn't really matter if you show up five minutes earlier or five minutes later. Like you're still going to be sitting in just as much traffic. But friends, you realize, if Jesus and his group, if they arrive five minutes earlier or five minutes later, at the town gate of Nain, these two crowds would have missed each other entirely. And remember, they've been making this all-day journey from Capernaum. You know how much variability there can be on these long trips, right? An extra stop here, an extra break there, a few extra minutes at lunch. All of that would have added up, and they would have missed this funeral procession. The body would have been buried already. And so really... What are the odds that Jesus and his group are making this all-day journey from Capernaum and simultaneously this man dies in Nain and the funeral procession is taking him out of the city? What are the odds that these two unusually large groups would run into each other at this choke point of the gate of this small town? What are the odds? Well, the Bible clearly teaches that the answer to that question is 100%. See, the Bible teaches that God is sovereign, that he sovereignly rules over his creation, that he has ordained whatsoever shall come to pass in his creation. And that includes not just the big picture things like the earth spinning around the sun or the seasons or the weather, but that also includes all the small details of life, all the small details of your life, Your train being late. Your oven not working this morning. Who you ran into the street yesterday. And so what untrained eyes might see as coincidences or chance or perhaps luck, well, those with a proper understanding of God's sovereignty can see it as his providence, as his wise and perfect orchestration of all things according to his sovereign plan. And so it's by God's providence that Jesus and his group happen to run into this funeral procession. This is no accident. This is no happenstance. This meeting, this appointment was divinely ordained by God to happen at this town gate so that Jesus might do what he's about to do. Point number one, providence. Surely each of us could come up with examples from our own life of God's providence at play. The ways in which a sovereign God orchestrated that old friend that I ran into at the grocery store yesterday. That sequence of events that seemingly had nothing to do with me. That missed flight or that cancellation or that weather delay that at the time seemed so random and rather inconvenient. God uses those things to shape our lives in just massive ways. 
maybe leading us to a new job opportunity, maybe allowing us to meet our future spouse, or perhaps even directing us to hear the gospel for the very first time. In his sovereignty, according to his providence, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And here, it pleased him through this uncanny timing to bring this funeral procession into an unavoidable confrontation with Jesus. Point number one, providence. That brings us to point number two, the pity. From what we know about first century Jewish funerals, we know that in addition to the people from the village, right, this considerable crowd, uh, there would have been these hired instrumentalists uh, playing music. And get this, there would have been these professional mourners or, or wailers whose job it was to cry really loudly. And you kind of wonder, how do you get into such a line of work? But that's another question. Uh, this would have been a large crowd. This would have been a noisy crowd. This would have been an emotional crowd. But look at how Luke's focus, and therefore the reader's focus, and most importantly, Jesus' focus is only on one person, the widow. Verse 12, a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her. And now look at how the deceased is described. The only son of his mother. When I told anything about him, what he looked like, what his reputation was, what he did for a living, we're only told about his relationship to her. The focus is entirely on this widow as Luke draws us into her tragedy. She was a widow, which means, presumably, this is not the first time she's been at the head of this procession from the gates of Nain to the burial site. She's, she's done this all before. But last time, Last time she at least had her boy next to her, walking with her. And now she's walking, no doubt to the same site, to bury that son next to his father. And so on the two worst days of her life, she's had to make the same walk. Right? So all the wounds that perhaps have begun to heal from her husband's death are now being torn open once again. Because now her son, her only son, is gone too. It's, it's really hard to compare kinds of grief. But by any account, right, this would have to be right at the top. Right? A parent burying their own child, your only child. And so in the Old Testament, God on multiple occasions uses that as an illustration for like the greatest grief imaginable. For example, Jeremiah 6.26, O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth, roll in ashes, make mourning as for an only son. Most bitter lamentation. And compounding that natural emotional grief of losing someone as close to you as your only son is the fact that economically speaking, like socially speaking, 
her life as she knew it was over. She would be a widow with no children. So she's got no meaningful way of supporting her, herself in that society. Her son, this, this young man, was her only hope of future support. He was going to provide for her and care for her in her old age, but now she's relegated to a life of poverty. And then compounding that double sadness, right? First of the personal loss, second of the economic destitution, will add to that the added sadness of knowing that the family line was done. That was a big deal in Israel back then. But no kids and no grandkids. The last one alive from her family was her. And after her, it was done. And so in essence... To, to use an Old Testament analogy, she's Naomi, but without Ruth. You remember what Naomi says? Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Well, she says that with Ruth standing next to her. If the presence of Ruth, her daughter-in-law, represented at least this tiny glimmer of hope for Naomi, even as she says all that, well, the widow at Nain doesn't even have that. All hope for her is seemingly lost. But, point number two, the pity, it's to this hopeless lowly, despondent, pitiable, disconsolate widow to whom the Lord of the universe now turns his attention. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her. I mean, there's dozens and dozens of people in this procession. And there's a sense in which Jesus sees them all. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, right? But Luke draws our attention particularly to the fact that Jesus sees her in her distress, in her plight, in her sorrow. Jesus sees her and has compassion on her. Reminds us of what Hagar said. When God is comforting her after Sarai drives her out, Genesis 16, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are are a God of seeing. Of the translations, you are the God who sees me. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. So Jesus is not just an unmoved bystander to this funeral procession. He has compassion He's pity on this widow. Uh, the Greek word there be, describes being moved from the inside, from the bowels. Uh, the NIV says his heart went out to her. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if we think about this often enough. Especially as those who embrace Reformed theology. And we see God as rightly, as this powerful and sovereign king. But friends, let's not forget this glorious truth that our God is compassionate, 
That he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That as the Father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And that the same God, this great God, invites us to cast all our anxieties on him precisely because he cares for us. That's got to have some impact on our prayer lives. But here that pity, that compassion, that's directed towards this hopeless, lowly, despondent, pitiable widow. But friends, if you've been with us in this Gospel of Luke, that really should be no surprise because it's exactly those kinds of people for whom Jesus came. You remember his mission statement back in chapter 4? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And nobody that we've met in this gospel epitomizes that term and all that it encompasses, the poor, better than this woman. And so it's to her that Jesus proclaims good news. And in this story, that good news first comes in the form of a bizarre command. Look at the end of verse 13. Do not weep. Do not weep. That's appropriate to say to the kids on your little league team who are crying because they lost a baseball game. But at a funeral? I mean, just think back to the last funeral that you were at. There's a close family member weeping at the loss of a loved one, and you just go up to them and you say, Do not weep. I mean, at the very least, that would be viewed as insensitive, unkind, rude, certainly not a compassionate thing to say. Like, if there ever was an appropriate time to weep, it's at the sadness of death, especially the death of a young man, the only son of a widow. I mean, they hired professional mourners for this thing. Of course, you should weep. And even Jesus himself. Everyone's favorite memory verse, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Jesus himself wept about death. And so it's certainly not wrong. You see, do not weep. That might be one of the more inappropriate and uncompassionate things to say at a funeral. Unless, of course, you can raise the dead. Which brings us to point number three. The power. So picture procession coming out of the town of Nain. You've got the widow, the, the mother of the deceased at the front of the procession. And then behind her, you've got the pallbearers and they're carrying the body on a beer. A beer. How was church today? It was good. The sermon was about beer. Now, beer is B-I-E-R, right? This is not like a coffin that would close. This is like a stretcher that you could hold at the four corners. The corpse would be on top of it, wrapped in a shroud. Beer. And then behind the beer would be the rest of the town. And so as this procession is making its way to the burial site, Jesus and his group, well, they approach the town gate, 
There the groups run into each other, right? That's point number one, providence. And then Jesus sees the widow. He's moved in compassion. That's point number two, pity. But you see, point number one and point number two by themselves doesn't really amount to much. Because sure, providence might bring them all together. But if Jesus can't do anything about it, well, then really it's just an inconvenience. It's just this traffic jam at this town gate that's now going to slow down the procession. And sure, Jesus might pity the lady. He might have great compassion on her. But if he can't do anything about it, well, he's, he's just a good friend. Not to minimize the value of a good friend in a time of distress, but ultimately he's not able to do or change anything. So you see, it's point number three, the power that changes everything. And Jesus expresses that power in this sequence of somewhat bizarre actions. Let me just picture yourself as one of the pallbearers, right? You're holding this beer. And here's this guy, he approaches, and you've probably never seen him in your life. And he tells the widow to stop crying. Back of your mind, you're thinking, well, that's not very kind. And then he comes up, and he stops the procession touching the beer. And now now you're completely in shock. First the man says that, and now he stops our procession. And then to top it all off, he talks to the dead body. Young man, I say to you, arise. You realize that if this young man doesn't get up at that point, all the people gathered, right, both his own disciples and the good people of Nain, they're all going to draw the same conclusion that Jesus has lost his mind. But point number three, the power. The, the same Jesus who we saw in the previous narrative heals someone on the verge of death by his word. Well, here he brings this dead man back to life just by his word. Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Now, naturally, we're curious. Luke, what did he say? I'm sure many of you are familiar with what happened this past week on Monday Night Football. A player on the Bills collapsed in the middle of the game after a play, and they had to do CPR on him and resuscitate him. There was a couple of days afterwards where nobody really knew what was going on, whether he would make it or not. Well, after a few days of no reports, on Thursday, the report came out that he was conscious and that he had asked the doctors if the Bills had won the game. Now, he didn't know, of course, that the game was never finished. It was suspended because of what happened to him, and so neither team won. And so it was an unanswerable question that he asked, but that's not the point. The point is that he asked a question, that he spoke, which meant that he was alive. And so going back to Nain, what did he say? I don't know. Maybe he asked if the Bills won. It doesn't matter. The point is that he spoke, which means that he's alive, which means he can get off that beer, which means the funeral's over, which means we can all do a grand U-turn and go back into the city of Nain. 
Point number three, the power. We've seen in this gospel, Jesus display his power in great ways. He's healed lepers, he's cured the sick, he's cast out demons, but this, no doubt, has been his greatest display of power. He took a man who was dead, certifiably dead, on his way to be buried, and he raises him back to life. And friends, don't miss the significance of that last little phrase there. Jesus gave him back to his mother. Remember we said earlier that this narrative is really about her, right? She's been the focus from the beginning. It's her whom Jesus saw. It's her for whom Jesus felt compassion. It's for her sake that he's done all this. And so it's fitting that the narrative ends not with what the son does, but with the mother. Jesus gave him to his mother. I might think, after all the craziness that just happened here, that Jesus would call this man to become some kind of itinerant preacher, telling everybody about the great things that Jesus has done, testifying to Jesus' death-defying power. But no. Just go back to what you were doing before you died. Serving and loving and caring for your mother. Being her help and her support. You see, oftentimes, the faithfulness that the Lord calls us to can seem rather unspectacular. Like the great things that God calls us to do are often seen in just the simplest avenues of life. Just being a sacrificially loving spouse. Or being a devoted father who takes time every day to read to his children. Being a tireless mother who compassionately cares for one sick child after the other. Or being a loving son. Going back to Nain to care for your widowed mother. Jesus gave him to his mother. From the mother's perspective, she couldn't have asked for more. You've turned my mourning into dancing. And so she becomes this living, breathing illustration of the beatitude from the previous chapter. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Point number three, the power. The providence, the pity, the power, that brings us to point number four, which is the praise. Look at verses 16 and 17. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Fear seized them all. You love that. How else could you describe their reaction This isn't just one of those things that you see and then you carry on with the rest of your life. This is something that you've literally never seen anything like this before. And so fear seizes them and they glorify God. Let's look at the two praises that Luke records the crowd saying. We'll start with the second one. God has visited his people. And that's terminology that we see throughout the Old Testament when God visibly demonstrates his favor to his people. 
And even in this very book, it's the language that Zechariah uses when John the Baptist, his son, is born as the forerunner to the Messiah, kind of setting into motion all that's about to take place. Luke 1.68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And now with Jesus having shown his power, even over death, bringing the dead back to life, the people acknowledge that indeed something special is going on. God has visited his people. But the other praise, a great prophet has arisen among us. Hmm. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, uh, which surely all the people present there on that day would have been, there's a story from the Old Testament that bears some striking resemblances to our story for today. And it's a story from 1 Kings 17 when Elijah raises the son of the widow at Zarephath. There's some striking similarities. Elijah meets that woman in the beginning of the chapter at a city gate. And this woman is a widow with an only son. The son dies. Elijah brings him back to life. And then here's the kicker. At the end of the story, 1 Kings 17, 23, Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And so that's what the people are referring to here. A great prophet has arisen among us. They're saying he is just like Elijah. Now, undeniably, there are some strong similarities between these two stories. And I think Luke intentionally highlights these similarities. But when there's a lot of similarities, it's actually the differences that your eyes should be drawn to. Like when I drink a Pepsi, because of how similar to Coke it tries to be, all I can think about is the differences, how this does not taste like Coke. The similarities serve to accentuate the differences. Well, in the same way, right, these two accounts, Elijah, Jesus, they're similar, but all the similarities make the differences all the more stark. And the main difference between the two stories is that Elijah, and you can read about this in 1 Kings 17 this afternoon, but Elijah, in order to raise the dead child, well, he first has to carry him upstairs, lays him on the bed, he cries out to the Lord, he stretches himself on the child three times, he prays again, and then finally, it says the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and that's when the boy revived. But Jesus, all he does is speak. Young man, I say to you, arise. And he does. Elijah had to do all this convoluted stuff and pray many times. But Jesus just speaks the word. And so yes, Elijah is a great prophet. Nobody is denying that. But Jesus is much more than another great prophet. Jesus is much more than a great teacher. Jesus is much more than a great miracle worker. Jesus is God incarnate. The crowds, though, they don't see that. 
They praise Jesus as this great prophet, but they fail to see him as the son of God. And we're going to see that confusion carry on straight to the end of the gospel. But while the crowds may be confused, Luke doesn't want to leave his readers with any doubts. Like what we've just seen, Jesus brought this young man back to life just by his word. That's not the work of any great prophet That's the work of the prophet, the Messiah, the Savior, God himself. Luke knows that, and Luke wants his readers to know that. And so did you notice what Luke calls Jesus in verse 13? And when the Lord saw her, we've spoken about that title a lot in recent weeks, right? Lord, Kurios, but this particular usage is significant because it's the first time that Luke, as the narrator, as the author, addresses Jesus as Lord. Other people have addressed him as Lord, but this is the first time that Luke, the author, draws his reader's attention to the sovereign lordship of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. This is none other than the Lord himself who is doing these things. Point number four, The praise, the providence, the pity, the power, the praise, and that leads us to our fifth and final P, which is the picture. You read the story at a surface level, and of course you're left with the undeniable conclusion that what just happened here is a really big deal. I mean, Jesus just raised someone from the dead. He canceled a funeral. He he turns this mourning procession on its head. Like there's been similar events in the past with Elijah and Elisha, but nothing like this has ever been seen before. But there's also a sense in which you might read this story and you're left wondering, yeah, but what does this have to do with me? So Jesus raised a guy from the dead 2,000 years ago. How does that help me to think about my own mortality and death? And that's where you need to see point number five, the picture. Because this narrative serves as a picture of the overarching storyline of the Bible. The Bible says that sin equals death. The death, all death, is a result of sin. Not that every death is directly caused by a person's sinful act, but that as a result of living in this sin-cursed world, all of us will physically die. Living in a sin-cursed world is ultimately why this young man died. And living in a sin-cursed world is ultimately why you and I will die. But even worse than our physical death is the fact that, by nature, we're all spiritually dead. We're separated from God. We're born with a sin nature, having descended from Adam and having inherited his sin. And we choose to sin each and every day. And because of all that sin that we've committed against the holy God, not only are we separated from him, But in addition to that, we deserve the just punishment for our sins, which is an eternity in hell. A third type of death, 
eternal death. And so to use Paul's language, we're dead even while we live. Even while we have life and breath in this life, physically, we're spiritually dead, right? On this funeral procession, so to speak, where we're marching helplessly towards our eternal deaths. And in that, we're hopeless and we're helpless. But then Jesus, in compassion, stops that procession. He sovereignly enters into our lives and he stops this inevitable march towards death. Young man, I say to you, arise. And just like that, everything changes. Even though we'll still physically die, well, where there was once spiritual death, now there is spiritual life. We've been reconciled to God. And where there was once eternal death awaiting us at the end, now there is this sure hope of eternal life. But how can that be? What about our sins? Well, that's where the wonderful news of the gospel comes in. Because this same Jesus, who so clearly demonstrated his power over death in this story, the same Jesus would in love and compassion for sinners like us, he would subject himself to death. He would humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And on the cross, he took our sins, all of the sins of those who would ever believe in him, and he would suffer the wrath of God in our place so that we might be forgiven, so that all who trust in him might be made righteous and have eternal life. Right? He died in the place of sinners. But remember, this Jesus that we're dealing with here He's got power over death itself. And so he doesn't stay dead after they take him off the cross. You're probably familiar with the scene after the resurrection. It's in John chapter 20. Mary Magdalene is at the tomb. She's weeping. She thinks Jesus is dead. And Jesus appears to her and she supposes him to be the gardener. Remember what he says to her? Woman, why are you weeping? Do not weep. Right? Because just like the widow at Nain, the cause of your weeping has been taken away. The widow at Nain, she just got the preview. She just got the picture. She got her son back for a while, but he would die again. Mary Magdalene had the reality. Or the first fruits of eternal resurrection. Her own resurrection being guaranteed in the indestructible life of the one who was standing before her. And so when Jesus rose again, like he like changes the game forever. So it's not just that he has power over death, something that he demonstrates in Nain. It's that he declares victory over death. And he guarantees that all who believe in him, all who are in him, are going to share in that victory. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So what does that practically mean for us? It means that what was once the scariest and most fearful of thoughts 
our death, our mortality, now is something that the believer can, in genuine hope, look forward to. Because Jesus has not only power over death, but he has declared victory over death. And we in Christ share in that victory. And the death of loved ones in Christ. Yes, that is still a source of grief, right? Death is unnatural. Death is is a product of this sin-cursed world. It's not how things ought to be. But we also don't grieve as those with no hope. Because we look forward to being with them again in a place where death shall be no more. A place secured for us by the one who has not only the power, but has proclaimed victory over death. Heidelberg Catechism, question number one. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we thank you for the victory that Christ has proclaimed on our behalf over death. We thank you for the hope that we who are in Christ can have, that even in death, we will reign with him. Father, we pray for those in this room who have not yet come to salvation. Pray that indeed today would be the day in which they would place their faith and their trust in the one who has risen again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.